Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life Told by a Stranger, the podcast where we pose the same four questions to each guest and get life advice to put our minds at rest. I'm your host, Daniela Lake, and today I'm here with Miss Hogan. Hi, Daniela. <laughs> Tell us about where you grew up. I was born in New York City, but I was raised mostly in Connecticut, in what was at the time a very small farming community in Connecticut. Um, But I was raised by parents who were city kids deep in the country, so that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you have any siblings? I have four older brothers. What was growing up with only brothers like? It meant, one person once told me that they could tell I was a little sister because I never knew when I had lost. Uh, I didn't know when to give up, when to quit, um, because I think I was so used to losing and not getting my way that that just stopped deterring me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Tell us about your job. I am a teacher. I'm a high school English teacher, and I've been teaching for 20 years. Uh, This year is my 20th year, so I'm thinking about maybe having a professional anniversary party to have Mm. been faithful to one profession for so long. Um, Yeah, so. Yeah, so what inspired you to be an English teacher? Good question. I was an English major in college, and my first job was actually at an advertising agency in New York City. And I think I was drawn to the idea of the creativity and for a chance to make, have a more successful livelihood. And yet, in the first month or two that I was there, I remember riding in an elevator and listening to people talk about how is it are we going to get people to buy lotto tickets if, since they would really have no chance of winning. And I remember at that moment in the elevator thinking, if I had any skill with language, I didn't really want to use it in that way for the rest of my life. So I, a few weeks later, resigned from gray advertising after I had secured, I had applied to grad school. Uh, Mm. And so I chose to do that instead. Mm. Okay, let's get into the four questions. So question number one, if you were to write an autobiography, what is one story you'd have to include? Let's see. One story I would want to include would be maybe one of the biggest risks I ever took. And I would include it because now I see it as something that had paid off. Although you might frame it in a different way. So one story I would want to include was a year that I decided to take off from teaching. I was 33 or 34 at the time. And I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And I thought, what's the point of being having so much freedom at this age? You know, when many other people are married and starting a family, what's the point of having all this freedom that I still had if I didn't take advantage of it? Mm -hmm. So I quit my teaching career for a year and bought a plane ticket. I was going to travel around the world and realized I didn't have enough money for that. So instead, I just um, went to India, which the cost of living there, I was $300 a month was plenty. In fact, I was paying more money each month to pay the car payment on my car back in the U.S. than I needed to actually survive for 30 days and travel and eat and find lodging and all that in India. Oh, wow. Um, So that was a real risk that paid off because it was stepping out of a career. It was leaving the country. I was a little bit older than you would think most people would do something like that. And it was a wonderful experience. 
What did you do in India? I really just backpacked and explored. So I had a plane ticket to go to Delhi, and my whole plan was just to go up to a place where there are a number of yoga ashrams and to study. And there I thought I might meet a more um, interesting kind of traveler, someone you know who wasn't just out there for the partying aspect of traveling. There's a lot of partying to the backpacking culture. And so I thought I might find someone with a little more seriousness or intention or purpose. Not that I was looking for someone boring, but you know, I wasn't interested in the rave drug scene. And that was it. So I flew to India, and I had no plans, no... Outside of the first night where I did have a hotel reserved, I had nothing reserved, no plans, not even an itinerary. And I just... What came along, I went with it. And on my first day there, I met a woman on a train who had this big, heavy backpack, and it was too heavy for her to lift it up on the train near where I was sitting, so I helped her. And we started talking, and then we didn't stop for the whole train ride. She suggested, well, why don't you come with me? I'm going to this other city, which was different than my original destination. And I just said, okay. I went off, and then the two of us became very, very close friends. She's from Israel. And in fact, this past summer, which would be 10 years since I did this trip, I went to go visit her in Israel. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, so that would be included because it was um, something I'm very glad I did. It was a risk, but it also had um, a more painful experience in it too. So it wasn't all roses, but it would be something... um, that the, I think the way you frame your experience matters. And so if there is some misfortune or some pain, how, do you, how big is the frame that you see? Is it a close-up on the misfortune or is it even bigger? Mm-hmm. And so that story would be, that experience would be something I could use to make that point. Yeah, like looking at the bigger picture. Yeah, so there, there, there was you know, some misfortune that befell me early on And rather than have that be the focus, like a zoom in on that, the way I see that experience was a much bigger zoom out. So there's so much more. And all in all, I mean, it's something that I would do over again. Mm -hmm. Even if I knew that everything was going to play out and I wouldn't be able to avoid that misfortune, I would still go and do it again. I feel like that's how it is with most things. I feel like I guess in, in life in general, if you look at all the little things, it looks all the little bad things. It's really, you'll end up being upset about it, but when you look at the bigger picture, you know, it's actually not that bad. Yeah, and it was all part of the experience of of learning. It was part of the friendship that I formed with someone as we were new friends. And so it helped us to, early on in a friendship, confront something that was more difficult and challenging and painful and I think we both respected the way we each responded to that. And so that deepened that friendship. You know, friendship isn't just in good times. It's also in bad, and that helped form that early on. Mm -hmm. Speaking of friendship, the second question is, what do you value the most in a person and why? What do I value most in a person? One of my closest friends, the first time I met her, I heard her laugh before I ever saw her. I was a teacher, I was new to a school, I was sitting in a room where all the English teachers were waiting before a meeting started, and I heard this laughter just come rippling down the hallway into the room, and I remember thinking, I want to meet the woman who laughs like that, especially before 
a teacher-faculty meeting. Most of us are not laughing as we're walking into that. And so I saw her walk in, and she ended up becoming one of my best friends. So I would say one of the things I really look for and admire is that spirit of mirth and joy that is very genuine and authentic so that walking into something you dread, you can still be the person who's laughing because it just set a tone. We could all hear it. She just has the most beautiful laughter. So I'm going to say that, that you know, we all have baggage. And this same friend once told me, of course, everybody has baggage. It's how you carry it that really matters. And she does it with such grace and humor. And I think that's something that I look for now. Uh, in a friend. Are you guys still friends? Yes, we are. <laughs> we are. She lives back in Connecticut, but we are still very close, dear friends, and we visit each other each year. We take turns flying out to visit each other because since that job, I had moved back to California, but I will never, ever forget her. And when I'm in one of those moments where I just need someone who I trust more than anything else, she's the first person that I call even though we have a three-hour time change, and it means sometimes I have to wake her up. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's like me with my sister, because she's in Connecticut, too. <laughs> okay, question number three. So putting aside money, fear, and insecurity, what is one thing you would love to do if there were no stakes and you had all the freedom in the world? If I had all the freedom in the world, I would love to write. I love writing and I think, and I still think about maybe taking a year off a sabbatical and just writing because there's all these different ideas and projects in my head. So that's what I would do because the fear, what keeps me away from that is the fear that I wouldn't be able to support myself or make a living or that I couldn't afford to take a year off. But now it's more realistic to take that year off uh, because I did get married a few weeks ago. You so did? now I did. I know I didn't <laughs> tell you that. I did. And so now there's a chance. We've actually talked about it. Um, he's an artist, he's a filmmaker. And when we moved in together, we stayed in his apartment. So either one of us could support the other if need be. And so we've actually talked about sometime in the future. Um, I always thought I loved to write, and people when I was younger would say, oh, you should write, you should write a book. And I remember thinking, I haven't lived enough. Mm -hmm. I need to live more. And I made the decision. I saw a poster in a teacher's class, and so help me God, I still remember it. It said, live the life of the book you would like to write. And it's super corny, but I followed that, and that's something that I chose. And now I think I'm ready to go back and write some of these wild stories, some of which I would change my name before Notre Dame would know it was me. <laughs> they might not be thrilled to have um, you know, all those stories laid bare, but that's what I would do. Yeah. Oh, I would love it. Yeah. Aw, I'm so happy for you. You would always talk about how you would like put aside time in the day to write stuff. Yes. Like in that cafe, and you showed us this picture of it. Part of that was me envying that he <laughs> had that time to write, because as a filmmaker, he owns his own company. So he does some of the writing. He does some of the art direction. He does the production. And, you know, that that's something that I've always admired, and it appeals to me. So the what, what I had shared last year with you was... Uh, the screenwriting that he was doing. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted that to be me, you know? I was like, oh my goodness, it's January. And here I am locked in a room that's very industrial with a bunch of 15-year-olds and we're, you know, having to, whatever, whatever it is we were reading. 
Um, oh, I remember it was a Victorian novel. It was, it Wuthering, was Heights. Wuthering Heights, which you guys were all hating, you know. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, here's a writer that I know who's off in a cafe in Ireland, just you know, for two weeks to remove himself from other people so he can write. And I remember sitting in the classroom thinking, yeah, I'd like to do that too. <laughs> um, okay, question number four. We're on four already. Um, what is the greatest piece of advice you have to offer? The greatest advice I would offer would be the advice that I was given by someone else. When I was in my early, mid-20s, I was this young firebrand liberal. I was angry and frustrated at things that I thought that we could correct and seemed so correctable in society. And I think I got very um, critical and that made me angry and grumpy. And I hadn't noticed that. And my father, when I was 25, and uh, my father was... I think he was like 39 when I was born. So he's, I'm the youngest of five. So, you know, he was a little bit older than maybe, you know, the average father. And that came with a lot more wisdom. And he called me to him and said that he thinks I'm spending too much time seeing how the glass is half empty and I'm not noticing how it's half full. And I was surprised because my father's not the kind of person who dispenses advice. He's not very talkative. That's my mother. Um, he's much more silent, quiet, he's an observer. And so I think that was actually maybe some of the only, or if not the only advice he ever gave me. And I, at the time I didn't think I needed it. I thought I was fabulous and you know the world just needed to move faster and change and evolve. But on a few days after he gave me that advice, I found myself seeing something that made me angry and grumpy. I heard two people talking, and I thought what they were discussing was so lame and shallow, and it started to make me angry and grumpy, and his words uh, occurred to me. And so I stopped and thought, okay, I see how this moment is half empty. How is this moment half full? And I found something there, and instantly I felt um, like a lightness and tension leave my body. And so I thought, wow, that works. Mm -hmm. That really works. And so since then, I have used that and remembered it. Um, so that would be the advice I would share. Because I think when you're young, it's very easy to see what you're against, what you don't like. It's harder to piece together what is there and see what is working because you can take it for granted. That is good advice. You can take it for granted. And it, it's easier to look at the... It's easier to look at the glass half empty. Uh, let's get into our holiday questions. Okay. What's your favorite holiday, and why is it your favorite holiday? When I was a child, it was Christmas, just because I loved opening presents. So that has changed now. My favorite holiday now, um, the widely celebrated ones would be Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. I love the food. I love the family coming together. I love the time of year, the autumn. I didn't appreciate autumn when I was younger. Now, with autumn, it's like a chance to retreat, to withdraw. The nights are getting longer. It's a chance to slow down. And then this holiday comes in, and it's about family and giving thanks and remembering what it is to be grateful for. And... Um, 
that it's now my favorite holiday. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And the food is so good. <laughs> I, you know, um, and I appreciate that more now than I did when I was younger. <laughs> so, what's your favorite holiday memory? My favorite holiday memory. Memory-wise, it would not be Thanksgiving because that's something I've only started to appreciate as I've gotten older. I would have to go with Christmas. My favorite holiday memory would be Christmas when I was about, I'm going to say, six or seven years old, and my parents got married in Puerto Rico because as Catholics, it was their second marriage. And in the early 1970s, the American Catholic Church wouldn't, you couldn't get married in the church if you had been divorced before and remarried. Mm. And it was a second marriage for both of my parents. So they actually, in the early 70s, had eloped to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where the Spanish Catholic Church let you do that. So who knew that, you know, the Catholic Church had these different, you know, strands to it that had different rules and policies. They got married and because of that, they did it at Christmas time. We went back every Christmas as a family down to San Juan. And one year, I just remember very fondly my brothers playing a prank on my dad. They dug this huge <laughs> hole. They worked all day digging this giant hole. And they were late teenagers and early 20s. And I just remember it was the kind of hole that a grown person could jump into and you wouldn't see the top of their head. Oh, my God. And so, you know, they... They dug this huge hole. They put then a blanket over it and somehow got my dad to walk into it. And my father at the time was also young enough that a fall like that wasn't terribly painful. Um, and I don't know. That was just like it was there was just such a playfulness, a youth to the family. Um, I'll never forget that. I think about it now. It sounds Maybe kind of mean, but I'll have to look at the glass half full. There was just a playfulness to it. And having been the youngest of five, much of my childhood, my three oldest brothers were not around. They weren't in the house. They were gone. So I think I also remember really fondly any memory where the whole family's together. Um, because I felt, I, even though I had four siblings, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with them growing up. So I always longed for that. I had one sibling who was pretty close in age to me, but the other three were not. And I always wanted more people. I just that chaos that comes from big families, the energy, um, the movement, uh, the excitement. And so when I had that with my own family, I really cherished it. So that would be a Christmas that that particular Christmas. They were still young enough to be fun. They were in their you know, late teens, early 20s. I remember my brothers would go out to the discotecas and stay out all night. Um, They would come home at 2 and 3 in the morning. And I remember as a child just being shocked that they would still be in bed, that we wouldn't see them until, you know, 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And that just blew my mind as a (laughs) 5 or 6-year-old. And then when I was that age, that's exactly what I did (laughs) myself. But I remember that perspective as a kid. I just loved it. Yeah. All the pranks. There was always just lots of pranks. I remember one Christmas, the, the coffee tables were these cubes that were, and they hid my Christmas presents underneath the cubes. 
And so when I came out, everybody had Christmas presents except, except for, for me. And they, you know, oh, Santa must have lost them. And I believed it. I was like, oh, Santa didn't know where I was. <laughs> you know, it took, and they didn't talk to me like, well, you know, Santa knew where all you were, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, so that kind of stuff. I love that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> and thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week, so stay tuned.